This episode of the Small Business Surgeon Podcast is brought to you by Texas Media Foundry. Engineer your reality at txfoundry.com. Welcome to the Small Business Surgeon Podcast, the show where we dissect the businesses of top producers, examine their growth strategies, and share with you the bare bones of their success. I am your host, Samuel Smith, and I'm glad you're here. Let's operate. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to this week's episode of the Small Business Surgeon Podcast. And uh, guys, my guest today is uh, is somebody I've only just run across. They were uh, they were sent to me by a podcast guest service that said they'd be a really good fit for the show. And uh, man, they are not lying. This fella is a multiple published author in the sales and marketing and personal development space. He's an entrepreneur. He's been in the marketing industry over 25 years years uh and he's got a lot to tell us about business life stocks and uh, and crypto as well welcome to the show uh my pleasure nico mercurius thank you thank you appreciate it nice uh, quite an introduction there thank you well you know for the first time in as many interviews as i've done i'm, I'm not sure what i want to ask you first because you know i i always like to take a second especially the guests that are referred to me and, uh, and try to get to know them a little bit before we uh before we go on and do the interview and your history reads like um it, dude it, it just it reads like a who's who of personal development and, and growth and investing and uh, man, i don't even know where to begin with you so do me a favor <laughs> do me a favor and just in your own words tell the audience uh who's on the show yeah sure well uh you know my name is nico mccurris and uh i uh i've been in the marketing um entrepreneurial space for, you know, since I was 16, 17 years old, my, I, I was a high school dropout. My mother happened to own a antique and jewelry store uh, when I was in middle school and high school, and she was doing quite well. My mother being a 10th grade dropout runaway who ran away from home in Minnesota and got married to my father, who was a uh, fourth grade dropout immigrant from Greece. So I got a long history of scholars in my, uh, <laughs> in my family. And, uh, I say that jokingly now because my father, he was very business minded. He didn't know uh, much about, you know, certain things, but he knew one thing. He knew how to deliver products and services. He knew how to take care of the customer and he knew how to run a business. And as a Greek immigrant, you know, they usually open up restaurants when they come to the U.S. Right. And he did the same. He had a restaurant in Indian Rocks Beach, Florida, mm -hmm. which is near where I live now. And um, it was called Never on Sunday named after a famous Greek actress who he swore was a, a, a cousin of ours, but he named my <laughs> sister Melina McCurry. Uh, so, so the restaurant was named after Melina McCurry, which is a Greek actress in Greek in Greece. Uh, he named my sister Melina and, uh, and the restaurant was called Melina McCurry's never on Sunday. And uh, he was closed on Sunday, which is something we see a very famous restaurant doing now, which is Chick-fil-A. My father had a, a unique, <laughs> That's a true. unique uh, yeah. principle about, yeah. He had a unique principle about that back then. And, um, an interesting thing I remember as a kid now, he, he passed away when I was eight years old. So, mm -hmm. um, but I have these memories of going to the restaurant and he used to, he had a hot air balloon that he tied to a rope, which only went up about a hundred yards, uh, before it stopped. So he would, you know, people would come from all over and get a hot air balloon ride mm -hmm. and, um, and just to go up high enough to where they can see the beaches all the way down. And he would reel them back in and bring them in to the restaurant and, you know, they would eat. And um, back then, this was in the in the, the late 60s, early 70s, 
Um, he bought a house on Terraverde Island, which was just nothing. It was just fields, but it was on the water. And it was developed by the Green family um, named Terraverde, which means land of the Greens. Mm-hmm. And um, so long history there. I don't want to go too far deep into that. But the funny thing was, is that back then in the 60s, a lot of the sitcom stars, the television stars from the Wild West, you know, TV shows like Bonanza and, uh, you know, those kinds of shows, uh, Lauren Green, some of the old mm-hmm. actors, they used to live locally. And so they all went to my dad's restaurant and he became kind of the local celebrity there uh, uh, before he passed away. But the story is, is that when he died at eight, he left my mother nothing. He didn't plan for his death. Uh, we lived in a very nice house on the water with a yacht in the backyard. So I, I like to say I have a more of a riches to rag story because right, right. I, I didn't have anything to do with the riches. My dad made money. And um, when he died, he left nothing to my mother other than what he had. And he owed so much in taxes and other other issues and other debts that he had that my mother knew nothing about that when he passed away, uh, she had to literally sell everything just to uh, be able to escape all that. Wow. And she ended up moving into a motel for six months with three kids and uh, ended up starting her own business and became a successful entrepreneur. So, you know, as I was growing up, I, I just kind of followed in that footstep. Um, by the time I was 18, I opened up my own call center uh, in Florida here, uh, telemarketing. And I had jobs at telemarketing offices and I did well as a salesperson, but I always noticed the owner was, you know, that was, well. that was my, that was my question. I mean, you know, what on earth? Cause at, at 18, you know, I was still, uh, I was still driving around to the bowling alley and chasing girls and you know, you're, you're opening a call center. What, what gives the 18 year old the impetus to open a call center? Yeah. Good question. I, well, my very first job was telemarketing and like, so, well, actually it wasn't my first job. My first job was at a gas station, um, pumping gas. And I knew I didn't want to do that. So right. my next, I knew I needed to get into sales. Um, so I got, a, I got a job at a call center and I was making five to $800 a week at 18, nine, 18 years old, thinking that I was rich, but the owner was pulling up in a new Rolls Royce. The owner had parties at, you know, his home on the water. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay, what's going on here. But then I just started doing the math how many sales I made multiplied by all the telemarketers in the office and you know, how much his profit margin was. And I realized, okay, I need to be the man. I need to be the owner. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so yeah. what is, what is it that you were selling back then? Uh, back then we were selling vacation packages to, to out of state residents uh, to come to Florida. So we would get contracts with hotels on oh, the beaches. Wow. Uh, yeah. All over Florida. It was a big thing back then. Tourism still is obviously, but mm-hmm. back then, they used to do the timeshare and mm-hmm. the cruise the cruise lines would have discounts for people to come to the Bahamas and other other little islands to look at timeshare. So we would contract with the cruise lines, we would contract with hotels in the Bahamas and in Florida and uh, offer to bring them people to stay and they would pitch them timeshare. So, uh, you know, people would pay us to come down here and uh, that that was quite a big business. We got to the point where we were selling, you know, hundreds and hundreds of vacation packages per day and, um, did quite well over over the over the coming years, so that's how I got my start in marketing, and this was before social media, so there was right, no right, right, yeah, there was no Facebook or YouTube or anything like that, and um, you know we had to run ads in the paper, and people would come into our office to interview, and we would interview them and schedule them for, you know, follow up. They'd come in and training. We would train them, and I was uh, when I opened my, my call center, I was a one man show. I I learned all the processes at the other call center, uh-huh. and then. Um, and that's what I did. I ran the ad. I, I, I leased an office. I set up all the equipment, had an IT guy come in and hook everything up. And then I ran the ad. I took the calls. I booked the interviews. And when they came in for interviews, I interviewed them and, uh, and scheduled them to start for training. And I scheduled 10 or 15 people to all start on the same day. And then when they came in for training, I trained them. And then when they were done training, I brought them into the, the phone room and sat them down and 
got them started on the phones. And after about a week of managing these 10 people, I found who the best one was and I pulled him off the phone uh, to become the trainer. So I, mm-hmm. I, I just systematically started replacing myself. Yeah, yeah. Um, then I hired a receptionist to take the ad calls and, and schedule the appointments. And then I hired someone to do the uh, interviews and then I hired someone to manage the call center. And so then I could just oversee the whole thing. And we grew that to about 150 salespeople at one point, 150 wow. people. Phones. And um, yeah, we, it was doing good. How do, you, how do you manage 150 personalities of staff as a, as an 18, 19, 20 year old, you know, entrepreneur? Yeah. Well, at, at 18 or 19, I didn't have 150 employees. It took, it took several years. It took me into my late twenties and early thirties before we got that big. Oh, I guess. Um, okay. But, but yeah, good question though. I, I'd like to clarify that. So, but at that time we had two shifts. We had, we had like, um, I think it was about 49 day shift people and about 49 night shift people. And then we had people in the wings waiting. Right. So we, I would, I would overstaff. I would hire about 20 more sales reps than I even had room for. Mm-hmm. Um, because on any given day in the telemarketing world, we have people calling in sick. We have people not showing up. We have people with excuses, car broke down, all these things. Right. So what I would do is I would just have 10, 15 people on each ship just waiting just to get on the phone in case someone doesn't come in or someone's out on a break, they would hop on. And that would also let the people that work there know that if they don't show up, their job, their seat's taken. And uh, so we did that intentionally to, just to keep that demand um, for the position. And, uh, but, you know, I had two managers per shift. I had a regular manager, I had an assistant manager for each shift. I had a, a general manager that oversaw all of that. So, you know, you just kind of build it up. So, <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it sounds like it. it sounds like a lot of, uh, a lot, a lot of things to juggle there. Tell me though, does this tie into the story for, uh, 2,451 sales per day? The, uh, the book you wrote, does this tie in with that? Can you, can you tell us some of the, uh, some of the parts of that book? Yeah. Um, interesting. Uh, there came, a, there came a time when the call center industry, you know, you probably remember, uh, you're a lot of new people, a lot of younger people won't know this, but you know, there was a do not call registry and we mm-hmm. got to the point where you couldn't just call anybody. They had to, they had to have, it was exciting when that came out because you, yes. you, know, you get called all the time about stuff. That's right. Yeah. And, especially uh, if you had a business line, goodness me. <laughs> yeah. So anybody who's not in the call center business hated telemarketers and they hated call centers, but we were serving a purpose for other companies. Other companies would hire us mm-hmm. to take their inbound calls or to do their outbound, outbound reach for them. Right. Right. And, um, and perfectly legal. And, and then they passed a law, which uh, stopped people from calling unless uh, unless you scrub the list and we had to get the list from the government and local governments. And um, so that pretty put a damper on business, so to speak. Yeah. We eventually, we eventually altered just, just the inbound and we just ran, uh, you know, did direct mail and ran yeah. mm-hmm. commercials on radio and TV and just calls started coming in. So we didn't have to worry about that anymore. But um, after, after my telemarketing, uh, I sold my, my interest in the, in the call center and I got out of the call center business. Um, I had a lot of people reaching out to me from other marketing companies and other call centers to come and, train their salespeople. Yeah. Um, and, and that's when I wrote the book. Um, and, uh, I kind of use that as a business card and, and it kind of helped a lot to get new clients. And, uh, I was teaching and training and consulting and, and speaking for different companies and going to their corporate events and things like that. Mm-hmm. Did that for a little while. And then that's when social media started taking, started coming into effect. Um, you know, I started promoting that on Facebook and, um, a blog. I had a blog at the time and a website and was getting thousands of visitors. And so it, it, that's kind of the direction I, I went to. It was kind of funny because in the telemarketing world, it was a cold call mm-hmm. and you had to sell a product or service on that call. And if you didn't, you lose that customer forever. Mm-hmm. And so 
you really had to like hard sell them and try to talk them into buying from you. Otherwise, it was a wasted call and right. that cost the company money. But in social media and in the new age of selling, it became attraction marketing. Mm -hmm. Whereas you have to put out good content, quality content. You have to provide a, a good or a service that people want. And then they reach out to you to buy their product or service. And that was a totally new world for me that I was learning. Yeah. And uh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I know, mean, we, I've, I went through the exact same, same learning curve. You know, it's, it's, there's a whole lot. It, it, it seems like, I don't know. I might be the, the very last of the generation to experience that old way of selling like attraction. Everything's shifted now, social media wise to attraction. And, uh, I luckily the kids don't have to learn how we had to. That's right. It's funny because I always tell kid, you know, younger people, I said, you know, the very first job you should get is a sales job. And in Florida, there are still call centers. So I would always tell people to go work at a call center. Mm -hmm. And because you may not, you may hate it and you may not like talking to people on the phone like that, but it will prepare you for the rest of your life. It'll teach you communication skills and how to overcome objections and um, basically how to sell. It's one of the most important skills that people can learn uh, in their career. Because no matter what you do, I mean, even if you're a doctor or a lawyer or, you know, a gardener or whatever, you have to sell. You have, oh, to, sell yeah. your, you have to sell yourself yeah. on people. You, yeah, you have to sell your product or service. You have to either, uh, you open up a business thinking that you want to, because you love flowers and you want to open up a flower shop <laughs> and all you want to do is play with flowers all day long, but no one's coming in the door to buy them. Mm -hmm. You now have to learn marketing. You have to learn salesmanship. You have to learn how to attract the clients. And so, yeah. That, you know, that's that, a that's lifelong kind of pursuit, I think. For, uh, exactly. for a lot of us and uh, especially with social media I'm I much prefer the attraction based stuff it's so much easier for me when a client shows up and they already know me and they already trust me you know how do you find it's changed your business strategy over the last few years oh absolutely I agree um, it's it's great when people when you just get messages out of the blue saying hey I want to join your mastermind or hey hey I saw your video on such and such and um, how do I get involved or how do I how do I join you guys or how do I get you know how do I hire you Mm -hmm. um it's uh, well it's all the difference in the world it's uh it's better it's better than paying for advertising it's organic and uh so it's free inbound you know interest into into what you're offering it, it i find it's far more effective too um so reading through your bio um you it, it says you've built several multi-million dollar companies and you're also a real estate investor and you have stuff to do with stocks and crypto now i've been and stalked your crypto page i'm extremely impressed and i would like to uh, i would like to, to to get to that but i was on one of your real estate investing pages as well and i noticed you'd done a facebook live talking about how you didn't want to do a skip trace this morning but you skip traced 50 people before you went to the gym and then you went to the workout and you didn't want to call your leads afterwards but you did and tell me based on that tell me what it takes to have a successful real estate investing business yeah so there's a lot of people out there teaching coaching training teaching people how to flip houses how to wholesale houses how to buy and hold how to invest in rental properties how to buy commercial properties apartment complexes there's a million different ways to do it and um, when i first started out i was whole i was flipping houses mm -hmm. and wholesaling and um, I was doing that in my spirit. This was after the call center days. Um, I, I was I, in the call center days, I bought real estate, but I didn't do it as an investment. I just had more money at the time. And I bought a condo and then I bought a house over right, here and I bought right. a place over here. And I was just sitting holding it while the market was going up in 2005, all the way to 2000, 
eight or nine. And uh, unfortunately, I bought too much stuff. And, um, and then when the market corrected, I was not a smart investor at the time, market corrected, I ended up sitting on and owning property that was now worth less than what I mm -hmm. borrowed to buy it. Yeah. So I was upside down. And uh, I, I wasn't renting them out. They were just my own personal property. So I, I had to short sell them in order to get out from the debt. Now, knowing what I know now, I would have done things differently back then. Right. But, yeah. Um, but so since then, I, I was wholesaling houses. And um, that's where you basically just make an offer to buy a house. They agree. You get the house under contract. And then you just sell a contract to someone right. else. The, the key part of that is finding the deals. It's like, Correct. where are the houses and, and how do I acquire those houses? And there's all kinds of little tricks you can do with, with software that will analyze in-state owners, out-of-state owners, late utility pays. Um, can, can you tell me just how much? Because I want the listeners to understand that they can be very successful flipping real estate, whether it's wholesale to wholesale or wholesale to retail with refurbishment or buy and rent and holding. I mean, I love real estate, but just how much work you put in to finding those properties and just how much effort you put into running a successful company. Yes. Can you talk about how you go about that process and how you actually, how much work it is to be an effective wholesaler? Yeah. So if you do not have money already, you don't have a, a, a high income or a, a, a you know, a pile of money just sitting around where you can spend a lot on advertising and you have to do this from the ground up or the old way, you know, you would go out and put out abandoned signs. You would, you would knock on doors. You would drive through neighborhoods and look at distressed properties. You would try to find the properties that had the grouse grass, that the, gra the high grass, the missing shingles. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and uh, maybe even some stickers on the window, maybe it's condemned or something, but yep. you want to make sure that the property is vacant. And then you would find, take the address and you would skip trace to try to find the owner of that property. Um, it might end up being a bank. It might have been foreclosed on or whatnot, but every once in a while you'll get lucky and find that's just an out-of-state owner who can't handle it anymore, doesn't want it anymore, and they're willing to just let it go. And that is a lot of work. It's a lot of work to drive around looking at properties. It takes your time and energy. It's a lot of work to put those bandit signs out. For one, they're halfway illegal in most yeah. counties and they don't like it when you do it. And what I used to do, I used to, I put out a hundred of them. The next day they were gone. The city would take them down, throw them away. And then they would call and threaten me to, you know, if I put up more, I'm just going to get fined. So then I, I got a little smarter and I put them out Friday after 5 p.m. When, when the county workers were gone for the weekend. <laughs> and then I would go pick them up on Sunday night before they started to work on Monday. So at nice. least I got the weekend out of mm -hmm. it. Uh, and, then, um, and then I started running ads. And this is when things change. Because once you start paying for uh, leads to come inbound, motivated seller leads, then you don't have to spend all your time out there trying to find them. So there's two ways, find them, you know, go out and look at the, for the needles in the haystack mm -hmm. or just drive by the haystacks with a magnet and let all the needle, needles fly, fly out. At you. <laughs> That's kind of what advertising does for you. So I did, now I did the old school while, while people were advertising on the internet, I was still running ads in the newspapers. Mm -hmm. And um, interestingly enough, I would get as many as 30, 40 calls a month from one little newspaper ad. And the reason why is because some of these older people who, who are in the situation where they want to sell for cash, they want to go live with their daughter or son right, or their husband, right. their husband, they don't, they still read the, they read the newspaper, they read the American classifieds. Yeah. Yep. And so that worked quite well for a while. But the problem I had is I started teaching wholesaling mm -hmm. and then I created a course and I had a coaching program and I, um, I started teaching and I would, I had hundreds of new students paying me to learn how to wholesale. And then they were all in their own little towns and little cities across the country. So what I had them do is run ads, 
And then when the calls came in to their, from their ads, mm -hmm. I would take, I would help them do the calls. I would respond. And then we would split the profit 50, 50. And so it freed me up from having to pay for advertising. I had someone else paying for advertising right. for me uh, and for a profit split. And so that worked out quite well for a while. And that was right up until 2019, 2020, when the COVID thing started happening and real estate markets started really going crazy here in yeah. Florida. Especially. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I the, uh, the, the, the hardest part about flipping houses out, out here, especially in, in my market too, is, is just how quickly the houses are selling. Um, you know, the, the last house my company listed was, was under contract at full price in three days still. And, you know, the, the, apparently there's a, a recession, but I, we're just not seeing it right here. Exactly. It exactly. Ma makes it very hard to find value in flips. Yeah. Um, and that's what happened. Motivated sellers were still motivated, but they were asking top dollar or, mm -hmm. you know, market value because they just kind of knew that they could. Mm -hmm. And even though their house needs 30, 40, $50,000 worth of repairs, they were still trying to get current market or after repair value yeah. on it. And, uh, and, and there was hedge funds coming in starting to buy them up and they were willing to pay top dollar for them, which kind of undercut all of the wholesalers. Um, and then, you know, then I started looking at investment. I realized that I wasted a lot of time. I probably flipped 60, 70 houses that way. And I could have bought one 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 unit apartment complex and uh, been a lot better off by now had I done that back then. And so then I started learning about uh, long-term investment holds, you know, um, multifamily mm -hmm. and syndication and things like that. And I'm in a lot of groups right now, almost closed on a 60 unit deal a couple of weeks ago. And, um, uh, we're still kind of going back and forth with them. But the difference is, is that even if you only get 10% of the deal, 15% of the deal by bringing in investors to try to buy it, mm -hmm. you know, that's 10 or 15% of a six, seven, eight, nine, ten million dollar property. And then you got the you got a, a percentage of the equity, you got a percentage of the cash flow, you got a percentage of the value gain when you add value, and so it just it's it's a much bigger piece of the pie than dealing with just one single family house and flipping it. So um, for the same amount of work, basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's it's the same way I I view my shift from residential to commercial real estate. You know, I still I still mess with residential real estate, but my focus is and. Uh, in commercial and is in, in developing because you know i can do a, a five million dollar project and, and make just as much as if i sold 20 houses and i'd rather do the project you know yeah that's correct so, and you can do it with uh without any of your own money still you know you can still bring in investors to help you get it done and you know one thing i get more than anything is investors going what do you have what do you have we can put money into what can we invest in where are the deals and um, yeah, I I really should put more time into going out and finding commercial deals for folks. It's just again, when does it make it on the calendar among all the podcasts and everything else we do? <laughs> make it it does uh, it it does though. It makes a lot more sense for me uh, to play in that realm than than try and sell twenty, thirty, forty single family homes in a year. It's just uh, much better off on the size of the deal. I want to move the conversation now, Nico, though, to uh, to the world of crypto because you're very, very, very good uh at navigating your way around that world tell us a little bit about your crypto group and what you do over there yeah so it's it's kind of funny i you know the, i love real estate real estate is the long-term hold real estate is the safe asset that's why they call it real estate mm -hmm. it's real yeah. <laughs> um i got involved in crypto around 2014 2013 and bitcoin was nothing you know a couple dollars up to I think 2015, 16 to 300 dollar range. Mm -hmm. It went up and down, and um, I had 50 Bitcoin at the time, about 2015, uh, which I did not keep all the way until the highs. 
I, I sold that early on because it tripled and I was like, Oh my God, this is crazy. It might not ever do I, this again. I, I did exactly the same thing in and out, in and yeah. out, in and out. And then I just got yeah. bored of it. I, I know for me, and I, I may get to this question later in the, in the crypto bit, but for me, it was like emperor's new clothes. I couldn't see the value of what we were trading. It's like, if I'm trading a stock, I can kind of see a value there, but I couldn't, I just couldn't get it. So I, I just dipped, dipped around with it. And then I, I bounced on crypto and I, I didn't even think about it until, uh, until I'd missed out. And then I was like, well, damn, you know, so, uh, tell me yeah, what it was like exactly. back in, back in the early days then what, what were you doing in crypto? How, how did you get turned onto it? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a risk taking kind of guy. I always see, I kind of see opportunities way before they seem to become mainstream. Cause I always, I always think, it's been very rare in my life that I was interested in something that other people were not. Mm -hmm. uh, every time I really like something or think something could be good, it tends to be a common belief after other people know about it. Um, so I, I, I always just use that instinct now. It's a gut instinct I have. I, I say, <clears throat> all right, this, this is something. I remember going to a conference uh, many years before Bitcoin where somebody was trying to create their own currency and the government didn't like that. And, uh, they got shut down. They got, but it wasn't Bitcoin. It wasn't digital. It was just they wanted their own money and they want right, to have their right. own community. And I, I said, okay, that's probably not going to work. But when Bitcoin came out, um, and, and you really understood the white paper, you really understood what was happening here. You have a 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist because it's a mathematical equation. There is no way for them to print more or create more or mine more. Mm -hmm. We're at 19 million approximately that have ever been created now. And that means, and there's another 3 million or so, and it will take until the year 2060, I believe, to mine the other 3 million. And because of that, what we have is we have a limited quantity and a never, uh, and an ever increasing demand. And so what happens in those situations is supply and demand, whatever is limited generally goes up in value as more and more people want to get their hands on it. Uh, it's, I always use the example of like a Rembrandt or a Picasso. If there's 10 of them in the world, and they're all held in private museums and maybe a couple are held in private homes and one comes on the market at a Sotheby's auction. Yeah. And that thing is for sale for $60 million. And a lot of people are like, what kind of idiot is going to pay $60 million for a painting? Well, what they don't realize is that idiot who's probably a billionaire and made 400 million in net profit that year, takes $60 million and buys a Rembrandt for $60 million. And then before the end of the year, they donate it to a charity. And so just so, for a lot of people who don't really understand why anybody would do that is it's a huge tax incentive, it's a huge tax write-off, and it's very profitable. So they donate to a charity. You're like, well, what good is that? They just lost $60 million. No, the charity is their own charity. Yeah, they own and the charity. That's how it works. They own the charity. Like, and, then, and then that the, – so now the charity legally owns the, the painting, but the painting is still hanging on the wall at, in the rich guy's fireplace room. Right. And so after a couple of years go by, the paintings are still – there's none available. There's none at the auction. There's no paintings anywhere. And then all of a sudden this painting comes back on the market five years later. Now it's 110 million mm -hmm. because of scarcity, because there's, because we haven't seen one in a while. You can't buy the one in the museum. So there's only a few people that have this painting. Now it's available for 120. He sells it for 120. The charity get, uh, makes a $60 million profit. Let's just say um, nonprofit rather. And, uh, and then the, 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 the owner of the charity leases Lear jets, private jets and yachts and houses all around the world in the name of the charity. Uh, they just use the stuff. And this is what rich people do. They don't buy the stuff. They they rent it from themselves that's, and, and, and write it all off. Yep. 
This episode of the Small Business Surgeon Podcast is brought to you by Soapbox, the new home of censorship-free media. Find out more at soapboxnews.com. And yeah. so, you, back you, to the, yeah, go ahead. You just, man, you don't have to like the game. You just have to learn the rules of it. Like, it? it's, yeah, like, it's, it's, well, as long as you play by the rules, you'll get away with it. And uh, yet the, you just explained how every single politician operates and how every single, you know, that, that's why they have charitable trusts. You know? Exactly. Yeah. And they, and they don't teach this in school intentionally because they, they want to dumb down the, the average. And this isn't conspiratorial. This is just the way it is. They don't no, teach finances fact. in school. They don't teach people how to get rich in school. They teach you how to become a good employee mm-hmm. to another person who probably is rich and probably didn't even go to school because most of the big corporate uh, billionaires in this day and age are not really scholars. You know, they're usually college dropouts, uh, entrepreneurs. And I'm not saying anything bad about going to school or college. I'm just saying that you're not going to learn these strategies there. Uh, when Donald Trump got on stage, and whether you like him or hate him, when he got on stage and told Hillary Clinton the reason why he didn't pay taxes is because the rules were written. Uh, the rules, the, the, the tax laws are written for real estate investors to legally avoid taxes uh, as, a, as a means to provide housing for people. And all rich people know this and they take advantage of it. But here's the thing. Every single one of us can take advantage of it. Exactly. We should all. This is available to everyone. Plus, we should all be, we should all be doing our best to to actually give to charities as well. You know, like just just because, you know, 20% of what goes to the charity could be used to, to enrich the life experience of the guy that founded it. The 80% should be going to do the good work that the charity is supposed to do. I mean, it's not the point of being here, right? At least I thought it was. That's true. Yeah. Preferably, preferably a charity that where, where they actually do good. Obviously, there's a lot of them out there that, that usually use all the money that comes in as operating expenses, and that's that's kind of criminal in and of itself. Yeah, the, the Clinton Foundation is notorious for doing that. Yeah, yeah, that's sure. uh, it's, a, it's a common thing. Yeah, they they can't they can't execute us all. I mean, <laughs> sorry, they can't they can't suicide us all. Sorry, they can't suicide us all. <laughs> that's funny. They, uh, yeah, so and, and so similar to Bitcoin, guys. So Bitcoin is, uh, you know, as we were talking about, I, I got off track a little bit with my analogies, yeah. but uh, you know, there's a limited supply, and it's a store of wealth, and it is an asset class. And uh, and people say, well, why why shouldn't I just have gold? Well, gold gold is clumsy. Gold is heavy. Gold is cumbersome. You can't you can't take a, a hundred million dollars or ten million dollars or five million dollars or a million dollars worth of gold and put it in a brief in a in a backpack and get on a plane. You can't do that. You can't send ten pounds or a hundred pounds of gold to your friend if they need some money. Uh, you can wear gold as jewelry. That's the main thing it's for, and some other types of stuff that it's good for. But blocks and uh, you know bars of gold, it looks good in your safe when you're showing your friends. But if you need to, to liquidate that, if some emergency happens and you need to cash that out, um, is the guy on the corner who owns the jewelry store who buys bars of gold, is he going to be open during that emergency? Are you going to be able to liquidate that? Or are you going to have to trade a bar of gold for a can of soup when you're starving? You're probably better off having can openers uh, during an emergency rather than gold. But Bitcoin, on the other hand, I can send any amount of it in minutes for practically no fee at all mm-hmm. uh, to anybody in the world in a split second. And um, I can also I can also send it to my own hard wallet and walk around with a little piece of plastic this big with a billion dollars on it if I wanted to and uh, and throw that to you across the, from my boat to yours. Uh, hopefully you catch it. And, uh, <laughs> and that's how that's how easy it is to move money when it's digitized like that. But uh, and that's just one thing. And the other thing is a lot of people say, well, what happens if I buy a Bitcoin and it goes up to five million dollars? 
in 10 or 20 years? Um, how can I spend it? How can I buy things with it? And um, that's kind of the wrong way of thinking. The, the way you got to look at Bitcoin as a store of wealth, you never sell it. And you say, well, what, what good is it if you can't sell it, if you can't turn it into money? Well, you, you can turn it into money. You just don't sell it. When you sell it, it's a taxable event, um, just like anything else that you buy. There's a, there's, a, there's a capital gains there. And like real estate, if you're holding a 10-unit apartment complex that you bought for a million dollars and 10 years from now it's worth 10 million, you, instead of selling it and, and paying the capital gains on the $8 million or $9 million in profit, you would just refinance that apartment building and pull out eight or $9 million cash tax-free mm -hmm. because tax uh, loans proceeds are not taxable and put that in your pocket. And you can do whatever you want with that $9 million. Well, how would you pay back that loan? Well, your tenants will just continue tenants to make it back. like yeah. it always works. Yeah. And the tenants yeah. pay back. So Bitcoin can same thing. You can borrow against your Bitcoin. You can borrow up to 60%. Some of the major exchanges like Coinbase allow you to borrow. Uh, Nexo is another one that you can borrow up to 60% for like as low as six or 7% interest. And so think about this. If you're borrowing, let's say you have a million dollars of Bitcoin and you want to buy a half a million dollar house, cash, you borrow against your Bitcoin, you pay cash for the house, you borrow 500,000, let's just say. You're paying 5.6% to borrow the Bitcoin, but Bitcoin's going up on average over the last decade between 100 and 200% a mm -hmm. year. It, that's pretty much free money. You're paying back the loan with the interest you're earning from the asset that you borrowed against. Uh, it's it's just kind of crazy what's possible. Now, what happens if Bitcoin drops 50% after you borrow? Well, the lender will <laughs> liquidate what they're holding as collateral to pay back the loan, which means the 500 grand you took out as a loan was free money at that point. And, um, and you don't have to pay it back at that point either. But you'd already gotten the money out in the form of a loan, so you wouldn't have to worry about that. So it's it's just it's just interesting. There's so much there's so much to be said about it. But we're the, the total the total amount of people in the investment world, meaning people who invest in stocks, bonds, mutual funds, four hundred one ks, real estate, mm -hmm. gold, silver, is about one percent of the entire human uh, population on planet Earth that invests in Bitcoin. And the, so that means the market cap for Bitcoin is a little under a trillion dollars. Mm -hmm. Gold's market cap is ten trillion. Right. So and and. So once Bitcoin's market cap gets to equal gold, $10 trillion market cap, that's only about 5 to 10% of the entire investing world owning Bitcoin. That's going to happen. That's just a matter of time. And at that point, Bitcoin will be between $1 and $5 million per Bitcoin. Uh, and once it gets up to 10, 15% uh, total you know, investors in the world that have some form of Bitcoin, Bitcoin could see $10 million, $15 million for one Bitcoin. Wow. That's insane. So, yeah, I suppose I'll have to buy a few Bitcoins then. Um, so you would be a good one to uh, just touch base with on this absolute catastrophe that is FTX. What are your thoughts on what's gone on there? Well, uh, you know, that was one that was one um, exchange that I never got in, invested in. I actually I think I might have opened up an account and I never did anything with it. I never funded it. I never did anything. And there was just something that I first of all, I didn't need it. I already had other accounts and Coinbase is, you know, one of the largest and it's regulated. It's a publicly traded company. And I don't really hold a lot of crypto there. I don't really hold crypto in any centralized exchange uh, because of that, the fact that that can happen. Mm -hmm. There's an old saying in crypto, not your keys, not your crypto. The meaning That's is if you true. don't have your 12 word, uh, your 12 word seed phrase, um, then the, then the, the bank, so to speak, the, the exchange can just freeze your funds, they can go out of business, they can have a problem, they can file bankruptcy, and then all of a sudden your crypto is tied up in their legal issues. Mm -hmm. And 
just like the bank, Wells Fargo or Chase, if, if there was a run on the banks, you can't go into an ATM machine and take your cash out. You can't walk into the bank. They will lock the doors. And like they do in Canada or China, China tanks are in front of the banks and you cannot take your money out once they freeze your funds. Uh, can that happen here? Sure. Anything's possible. So we advise people to, if you have any large amounts of crypto, to use a hard wallet or right, uh, right. a cold storage wallet where you have, are the only one that has access. And then, um, and then whenever you want to put the money back on exchange, whenever you want to transfer it around, you just plug your little, you know, your little hard wallet into uh, any internet connected PC. And then you, you can send from your wallet to someone else's. So it's just, it's just a safe way to store it. I guess the olden days, it would be like taking your cash out of the bank and putting it under a mattress or putting yeah. it somewhere. Yeah, yeah, I like that idea. <laughs> that sorry, that analogy. I like because that's essentially what a, a cold wallet is. It's like putting it hiding it under the bed where no one else can get to it except for you and anyone else that's in your bedroom, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, There's a lot to learn. There's a lot to learn, and people should learn because they're going to be forced to learn eventually. So they might as well do it now while it's not a major thing. But there will come a day when your bank, you know, just just real clear, uh, banks right now like Chase or Wells Fargo. They're losing millions of customers by the droves that are just not banking anymore because they're buying, they're they're having accounts in crypto and and they're doing all that stuff and they could well, easily keep them. Yeah, they just offer the same services. You know, I bank local. Um, Wells Fargo, Chase, like Bank of America, the the customer service isn't there. The relationships aren't there. You know, I want to be able to pick up the phone and talk to somebody. <laughs> Is that too much? And so now I see the, the whole, I could see why an entire generation of, of, of people would shift to just banking by crypto and by app. Because, I mean, there's no middleman to pay, you know? So it makes a yeah. lot of sense. Yeah. And, and some of those banks are not crypto friendly at all. They don't like, they don't like it. Um, but some of them do. Chase is okay. JP Morgan, Chase. JP Morgan is one as a hedge fund, uh, crypto hedge fund. They're, they're, they're a lot more crypto friendly. Uh, but you're going to see banks are going to have incentives now to open up a checking account where you get your free Bitcoin wallet and all these other things. They're going to offer that because, you know, they're going to have to eventually. Tell me about this new digital currency that the government's starting to trial. What do you know? Well, about I, yeah, I, I, you know, I don't really know what's up their sleeve, but I think that what they're trying to do and and it's more of a control issue is a lot of people advocate for crypto and the problem is, is crypto is meant to be decentralized. So it's meant to be uh, a way for you to have an asset, your own money supplier, your own, your own assets that were not controlled by the government. Mm -hmm. But now what's going to happen is the government is going to come in and regulate and control most of these uh, centralized exchanges. But there's still so many decentralized exchanges out there. It's kind of like the wild, wild west. They're unregulated. Scams do happen. You got to be careful. But yeah. it's also the freest form well, of... Without getting like, without getting too, too conspiratorial, it does seem as though the the smoke from the FTX fire has been that this was done somewhat intentionally in order to be able to bring about uh, more stringent regulations on crypto. Does does that look like the case to you? It's a good observation, and it's kind of ironic how uh, usually these types of regulations or or new laws uh, get on the table when something like that happens that the government seemed to have a hand in or be so involved in from the beginning with this guy. Mm -hmm. um, but also all you gotta do is look at China. Uh, China has been doing this for a little while now. China, you know, you have to have a card in certain areas, smart card, when you go to buy, yeah. you yeah, just yeah, wave yeah. your card everywhere. And um, you gotta get a travel 
a vaccine uh, vaccine passport to travel. And if you do not keep that updated, they can turn off your cards. If you try to protest uh, having to go in for your shots or stand in, in line in the snow for five hours to get your shots in order for you to be able to eat because your card's turned off, that's how the control happens. Once they get to that point where everything's digitized, so let's just say the government does have a U.S. dollar wall, uh, token or coin. Um, now, you probably heard of USDC, which is a U.S. dollar coin, but that's not from the government. That is right, a private right. uh, asset. But once the government does it, uh, it will probably be something that could be turned off. In fact, China, I think there's some countries where where you have to spend the money you have by the or end of the expires, month or, right? or it vanishes. It expires. So now imagine. You know, yeah, you and and at what point do we just kind of opt out of that and go? You know what? You guys go over there on on that side of the of the river, and you have your uh, digital things over there. And uh, me and Nico and the rest of the lads, we're all going to trade over here with gold and silver and potatoes and chickens and cows and and all this other good stuff that that we know how to do. Do you think that's going to come to that point? You know, it's it's hard to say because every time I think I got something figured out, um, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's you know, here's some of the conspiracies out there, and, and I'm I'm a firm believer. Uh, you know, I'm not a conspiratorialist to the to the degree where I talk about conspiracy theories, but there are a lot of conspiracy conspiracy facts. There's a lot of things that have happened that used to be conspiracy that are now true and facts. Yeah. So I'm open minded to all these possibilities, but sometimes it's the thing you least expected, like. You know, Democrat, Republican. Oh, well, those damn Democrats are doing this and this. And so I'm a Republican. Well, you know, Democrat, Republican are basically two wings of the same bird. Yes. And there's somebody behind the scenes controlling both sides and possibly for the benefit of getting you to pick a side so that when, so if they do something bad on this side, you can get on this side. And then this side, don't you get on? And mm -hmm. they can control you even better. So you got to kind of even step away from both of those and look look down as if you're not really connected to either side and see what's really going on. And um, it could be even more sinister than anybody could even imagine. But it seems like every time we get close to something that seems sinister, the pushback happens and the people just stand up and don't take it. And I just hope that continues. Uh, unfortunately, the people who are capable and knowledgeable enough to stand up and push back are getting older and they're not the same. You know, the younger generations are not the same ones that grew up knowing the difference between what it used to be and what it is now. And they're more yeah. likely to just accept things because they don't know any different. That's that's very true. Mildly concerning too. So what you're saying is, if guys over thirty-five don't pull their fingers out of their asses, we're all going to be in a little bit of trouble. Yeah, yeah, and and a lot of people, you know, a lot of people got up in arms about Trump, but Trump Trump was the only billionaire that I knew of that was literally stepping up and calling these people out. You know, I was really surprised that he didn't get taken out. Um, mm. some somewhere along the line, was even though. It, yeah, even though he's brass and he says dumb things sometimes, he was right about a lot of things. You know, I don't particularly like the guy, but you've got to give him his. You've got to give him his credit. You know, I, I yeah. don't. I don't particularly care for a lot of the way he does things, but again, you've got to give him credit where it's due. He's he's been the only person that's that stood up and spoke out against it and 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 led right there. And um, to to think of Donald Trump as a leader is is quite strange to somebody like me, um, but. And again, just look at the evidence and look at what happened, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as a business owner, as you know, you know, what I, people used to tell me, yeah, well, how can you like him? He, he had bankruptcies. He filed bankruptcy for time. I'm like, yeah, well, when you have 500 companies mm -hmm. and tens of thousands of employees, a lot of people don't know this, but the, the Trump organization employs tens of thousands of people, payroll in the millions and millions of dollars every year. And they do pay taxes. They deduct taxes. Mm -hmm. they, they, 
They pay payroll taxes. A lot of people don't understand that. Trump's personal income, what billionaires do is they pay themselves very little. Yeah, that's um, the point. You that, run the rules of the game. Reduce, yeah, that's how you reduce your tax liability. Mm -hmm. And how you pay no taxes from your company if it's investing in real estate and assets like that, uh, there's ways to minimize or reduce your taxes down to hardly nothing. But someone who's has over 500 companies who didn't do well on a few of them, filed bankruptcy, to me, that's admirable. That To me, it's like, okay, so he filed bankruptcy, but um, but what happened? Okay, well, he took like, he, he took some casinos that were sitting there rotting away, decided to rehabilitate them and try to reno, uh, renovate and revitalize the area, put his own money that he borrowed. So he risked all of his own money to do that, hired thousands of people to come work for them, gave them opportunity for a job. People's like, yeah, but all those people lost their job. I said, yeah, but he gave them the job yeah. first, See. you know? And so, yeah. So when he fails at something like that, everybody's like, oh, he's a failure. If he wouldn't have made it, if his dad didn't give him a million dollars, I'm like, okay. Take, let me give you an example. Take a thousand dollars and turn it into a million. Let me see you do it. Um, you okay. know, he, so he got, he got a million, but he turned it into like however many billions he thinks he has. I don't know, but that's not an easy thing to do for anybody. Um, but you know, as dumb as he is, he was smart enough to, you know, become the best selling New York Times best selling author. He's smart enough to start a, a reality show that became the number one show on TV. And he was smart enough to become the president of the United States. So you can't be stupid and do all those things and become a billionaire on your own. You just can't. So, I don't look at, uh, trust me, I cringe when he says certain things, <laughs> cringe. I'm like, oh, what's, why did you say that? But yeah. at the same time, but at the same time, if I had a choice between him running a country, which is a very important thing to do and being someone who's a hard ass uh, towards people who need to be dealt with in a certain way, I would pick him over the current administration any day every, of the year. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. I think one thing that, that people forget, and you'll probably hear in most of those anti-Trump comments from people that don't run their own businesses, people that have Always. never been in the trenches and never never lost a business or, or never won a business and don't actually know what it takes to, to have even an organization that's uh, on, on a hundredth of the scale of what Trump's doing. I think you'll find most of the people openly criticizing his business acumen have, have no real business experience. You know? Absolutely. You'll also notice, and what people should notice, is that the people who fight, the people who are against each other, are the low-level people, the masses. Mm -hmm. You never see politicians beating them, beating each other up. You see Putin and Biden and Clinton and Obama. You see them meeting with world leaders that are, you know, communists and sitting down and shaking their hand and trying to work things out. But the people down, the followers, the people who follow Biden, Trump, and all these people—they're the one arguing with each other. You don't see spiritual leaders fighting with each other. You don't see the Pope or the head of the you know, the Greek Orthodox Church and the Muslim uh, uh, leaders arguing and fighting over religion. No, it's just all the people down below that are killing each other over whose God is right. And so... But they get to find out soonest. <laughs> right. right. It's, it's, like, I'm not ready to find that out yet, you know? I th I, right. I'm with you right there. I think there's, there's, there's bits we can learn from every single religion. I think there's... But there's 3,000 gods uh, in, in recorded history, at least that we know of, you know, just, just don't be sold on yours being the only one. Just, you know. uh, it's amazing how many people are convinced about what they know when they really don't know anything hmm. about what's going on in the world. And I'm not saying I do know everything. I'm just saying there's a lot of people who know nothing who are convinced about something. Well, it's easier to fool somebody than it is to actually convince them that they've been fooled. You see, that's, whatever, that's true. whatever thoughts, 
yeah, I I believe that most of what we're you see, I own a media company outside of the small business side, and I, I make videos for people. And the tagline of our video company is engineer your reality. And that is like literally what the media does. It engineers a reality. You can create any news story you want. And if you repeat it enough times, the people will believe it's true. And so like, it's just like Twitter or it's like, you know, Rupert Murdoch owning the newspapers or um, it's just, it's he who owns it gets to decide what goes in there and what's talked about. So. Absolutely right. You know, that's uh, where we're at with that. All right. What else do we have to cover today? Um, dude, I'm not sure. It's been a heck of a, a, heck of a conversation uh, <laughs> every conversation so far. I've got a couple more questions, uh, if you don't mind, before we start wrapping sure. things up. So you've got a lot of experience in a lot of different areas, Nico, and we touched on a few of those, and there have been tremendous successes, and there have been some some failures too. This show is aimed at entrepreneurs that are a few years behind both of us in their, in their learning and business cycle. Um, if you could reach back a few years and give yourself some advice that you carry around with you now that was hard fought and well learned, what would you like to tell yourself? That's a great one. Uh, a few years back, when I first seen success, there was no distractions. There was no, you know, uh, Google and internet and Zoom, you know, uh, Facebook and Instagram and all these videos and all these things going on. And I was focused on my business mm -hmm. and, uh, and we, we became very successful. There was only one thing to do every day. And that was work on the business that you were involved in. Nowadays, uh, we, there's something called shiny object syndrome. Most people have it as soon as they see something else. They're like, Oh, that looks easy. I should do that. And most people are out there trying to, they're just trying to make money and they're trying to find the quickest way to make it. And so they, they get locked onto one thing and they start it. And then something else looks easier. And they jump, they jump into that thing. Right. And right. then they see something else that looks easier. So now they're scattered and they have 10 different things going. None of them are working. And then they watch some guru that says, you have to have multiple streams of income. And so they, well, good. I have four businesses started now. I need mm -hmm. a five or six. So they start two more little things. And what they have is multiple trickles, if they're lucky, not streams, but little tiny trickles of income. And not one of them is making enough money to pay the bills. And that's because there's their their focus is divided amongst five, six, seven different projects that they're mm -hmm. working on. I see so many people that are proud of that. They're like, oh, I got this, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this. And uh, so my advice, not only to my younger self, but to anybody who is just starting out or probably already recognize what I just said is true, is yeah. you need to pick one thing and focus on it. And you need to focus on it to completion and uh, and really give it a chance because no business will be successful if you're if you're giving it only 50% effort. And if you're, if you have two businesses, then you're giving each one 50% effort. If you have three, 30% effort, four, 25% mm -hmm. effort and so on and so forth. You can't, you can't make anything work with that, that level of distraction. And then, and then you add in social media and all the other nonsense that's keeping you from really focusing. So really just pick one thing. If it's real estate, you can become super wealthy with real estate. I wish that that's all I focused on for the past decade, 10 years, 20 yeah. years. I wish that was it. Cause if that was it, I'd be. You know, I'd have 20, 30, 40 million dollars with just real estate right now. Mm -hmm. So uh, pick one thing and be really good at it. Dude, I like and that. Learn. Dude, and learn from people who've done it before you. Yeah. That's some great advice, man. Surround yourself with those mentors too. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Nico, we've come to the end of our time, my friend. Um, before we get off here, though, please let me know and let the listeners know where they can find you online and uh, where they can follow along with what it is that you're doing. 
Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. Yeah, well, you can uh, you can find me. My name is it might be on the screen. It's Nico Mercuris, mm -hmm. and you can find me on Instagram with the same name, Instagram forward slash Nico Mercuris, uh, YouTube channel, YouTube slash Nico Mercuris, uh, Facebook Nico Mercuris. There's two <laughs> face. There's two Facebook pages. There's one that's my personal page, which is my name, and then there's the official one, my business page, which is also Nico Mercuris official, and. Uh, Send me a private message. Let me know you heard me on this podcast. I'll be happy to send you a free guide to crypto, free guide to ICOs, which is something we're doing in our private uh, Facebook group. We also have called Crypto Renegades on Facebook. So search for Crypto Renegades and I'll give you a free guide on how we are getting into the ICO world, which is the initial coin offerings, brand new token launches. We didn't even talk about that, but that's exciting. Uh, we're getting 2x to 10x gains on tokens that are just new for the very first time. That's and, crazy. Um, yeah, so a lot of fun there. So yeah, reach out. Let me know you, you saw me here and I'll be happy to give you a free guide. Guys, Nico, thank you so much for hanging out today, man. I really appreciate the value you brought to the show. Uh, and guys, uh, once again, if you have enjoyed today's show, that was Nico Mercuris. His socials will be in the show notes. Please go follow along, show him some love. And uh, you can find us at Small Business Surgeon on Facebook and Instagram. If you've enjoyed the show, do us a favor and share it out there. All right, you'll have a great week. Nico, thanks for being on. Thank you, appreciate it. Bye everyone. This has been the Small Business Surgeon Podcast. If you've made it this far, you clearly like it. So go on iTunes and leave us a five-star review. This helps people find the show and spread the good word. Share with friends and follow us at Small Business Surgeon on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you for your follow-up next week. The Small Business Surgeon was recorded at Texas Media Foundry in historic downtown Bryan, Texas. Check them out at txfoundry.com or on social media at txfoundry. Thanks for tuning in. This episode of the Small Business Surgeon Podcast is brought to you by reengageme.com. Customer acquisition retargeting made easy. Generate more revenue for your business without taking time away from doing things you actually love.